Well, good morning. This week we are continuing our sermon series in the Psalms that Jeff kicked off last week. And we are continuing today in Psalm 113. Before we begin, just a quick review though. I know, Jeff, we included in your bulletins this week the same sermon guide as we had last week, just as a way of refreshing your memory as a good foray or introduction into the Psalms, if you'd like to take a look at that. Uh, Jeff talked about last week how uh, the Psalms, the broad genre of wisdom literature in which the Psalms fall. There are various categories of the Psalms. So we come across in the Psalms hymn or Psalms of Praise, also called hymns. That's going to be what Je- that's what Jeff preached from last week in Psalm 8, and that's what we're going to be preaching from today with Psalm 113. There's also Psalms of Lament. There's Davidic kingship psalms. There's psalms of thanksgiving. So within the broad genre of wisdom literature and the psalms, there's a variety of different categories. And our goal for this summer, for the rest of the summer, is that we take a sampling from each one of those categories and preach from about two psalms from each of those, just to give us a holistic picture of the psalms. Well, the psalm today, Psalm 113, falls into the first category. It's a psalm of praise. And it's also the first psalm in a small group of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 comprise what's called the Hallel Psalms. And this group of psalms held a special place in Israel's history because they were read or sung during the Passover meal. Psalm 113 and 114 would have been read and sung just prior to the Passover meal in Israel's history. So it's uh, particularly appropriate and admittedly somewhat unintentional that we read and preach from Psalm 113 today before we celebrate the eschatological realization of the Passover and the Lord's Supper. How about that? But before we read the text and begin looking at the text, let's go to our God in prayer. Let me pray. Holy God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, that when we meet with you, we get to learn who we're meeting with through your word, that we hear your voice in the word. And we thank you that you speak to us in your word. And we look forward to, as Thomas Watson said, feeling the Father's kiss, just as we hear the Father's voice of feeling the Father's kiss in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You are a good Father who reveals yourself to us. And pray that you would reveal yourself to us in your word this morning, impress upon our hearts the goodness of the gospel, and help us get out of here and leave here knowing that you are the good God who meets with his people, who loves his people, all through the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please follow along with me as I read from Psalm 113? I'll be reading out of the ESV. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The issue of praise and worship, how we worship and who we worship, is absolutely integral and central to this psalm. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see why this psalm would be categorized as a psalm of praise, right? 
Praise is all over the place. In the first three verses, the psalmist calls us to praise the Lord no less than four times. I remember back in seminary, my Old Testament professor, uh, Mark Vitato, Dr. Mark Vitato, used to always teach us that when English children are learning how to read and write, they're often taught to use synonyms, mix up your language lest you sound boring. But for Hebrew children learning to read and write, they're often taught to repeat as much as possible so that you can emphasize your main point. Hence, praise or worship is absolutely central to the psalm before us. We also see this central point reinforced in another way too. Jeff introduced us last week to that structural feature known as an inclusio. Inclusio is when a text starts the same way and it ends the same way in order to reinforce the basic point of the text. And we find an inclusio in this text. It starts out with praise the Lord. And it ends in verse 9 with the very same call to praise. Thus, a distinct tone of praise or worship is struck no less than six times throughout this short psalm, nine verses in total. And yet I suspect that for some of us, this call to praise or worship might seem a tad bit artificial or inauthentic. Some of you might be asking yourself, how in the world can God call me to praise or worship his name when I have cancer or when I I have no job or fill in the blank? In other words, how do we approach a text like this? And how do we approach corporate worship in general where the very idea is to offer up praise and worship to the God of the universe when our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, are so often inclined in the exact opposite way? How can we sing praise to our Lord when we're just not in it, so to speak? Well, one of the things the Psalms do is they always give us a reason. They extol us to worship the Lord, this Psalm in particular, and plenty other Psalms we could go to where the initial call to praise is struck right at the outset. They extol us to praise, but then they so often give us a reason why it's fitting and right to worship the Lord. And Psalm 113 is no different in that respect. One commentator on the Psalms by the name of Alan Ross, he structures Psalm 113 in particular in two parts. The first part, I think, believe one through three, verses one through three, he entitles the call to praise, where the tone is struck that we as God's people are gathered together and we are called to praise the name of the Lord. But then in verses four through nine, he entitles that section, the calls to praise, because God gives us through the psalmist a reason why it's fitting and right for us to worship the living God. But that also, even though the Psalms give us a reason, and even though, spoiler alert, Psalm 113 also gives us a reason why we should worship the Lord, and we'll talk about that in a second, that at the same time doesn't render the initial call to praise superfluous, because we need to hear this call to worship. We need to hear calls to worship like we find in Psalm 113 over and over again. It's necessary for the Christian life because these calls to praise awaken in us and stir us in our restlessness to find comfort and to find rest in somebody else more worthy of finding rest in. I love what John Calvin writes on this. He's commenting on the opening call to praise in verse 1, which, by the way, this, this uh, translation, praise the Lord and then praise the Lord, that's really just one word in Hebrew, and the word in Hebrew is hallelujah. 
That's it. So we have this initial hallelujah and this concluding hallelujah. And Calvin writes on this. He says, and if we consider how cold and callous men are in this religious exercise, namely how cold and callous we so often are in offering praise or worship to our God, he continues, we will not deem the repetition of the call to praise God superfluous. We all acknowledge that we were created to praise God's name while at the same time his glory is so often disregarded by us. Such criminal apathy is justly condemned by the prophet with the view of stirring us up to unwearied zeal in praising God. The call to worship then, far from being inauthentic or artificial, is a call that we need to hear over and over again in the Christian life because it immediately sets before our eyes who God is who we are as the people of God, what grace is as well, and it reorients us accordingly. This is the reason, if you've ever wondered why we start our corporate worship services every week with a call to worship, which functions in much of the same way as this initial call in Psalm 113 functions. I like what Brian Chappell has to say on this, specifically on the call to worship that starts out corporate worship service, but certainly applicable to the text that we're reading today. Brian Chappell, he writes this. He says, in the call to worship, God calls us to give him praise, but the command is not burdensome. It's not inauthentic. It is an invitation to respond to God's revelation of himself and his grace. In offering this invitation, God is both host and honoree, and God's people are both invited and compelled to his mercy to give him glory. So in the call to worship, we have a call before us that sets before our eyes initially who God is, the privilege that we have as God's people to approach the throne of grace, tells us what grace is and what mercy is, all wrapped up in a simple call to praise with the goal that we would cultivate praise and worship in our lives. And this verse tells us quite a bit about praise and worship. In particularly, um, what I'm going to argue is that a life of worship, a life that cultivates or seeks to cultivate worship continually, involves us considering again and again the nature of worship, when to worship, and the people of worship. Simple three-point outline, cultivating praise and worship involves us considering as God's people the nature of worship, when to worship, and the people of worship. So to start out, first the nature of worship. And here we're asking two questions. Two questions we're asking are what is worship and who or what is the object of our worship. In other words, to use the psalmist's language here, what does it mean to praise? And then what does it mean to praise the name of the Lord? Well, the first thing we should say is that by praise or worship, we don't just mean that portion of the worship service where we're singing songs, especially among my generation. And I'm glad I can say among my generation in the second service and have people that can understand me. In the first service, it kind of falls on deaf ears when I say among my generations. I'm like a science experiment. Everybody looking, well, tell us about your generation. But some of you can relate with me. So especially among my generation, it's become somewhat fashionable and commonplace to exclusively use the term worship or praise and 
worship to refer only to the time in the service when we're singing songs. And so in that schema, for instance, we would have a bunch of liturgy, and then we would have praise and worship, and then we would have the sermon that takes place afterwards. But while music is certainly part of worship, and it's instrumental in giving praise to God, no pun intended there, ha ha ha, uh, worship encompasses so much more than just music. In short, at its very basic level, worship is simply the disposition of all of our hearts. Worship doesn't just happen when we come to church on Sunday, and worship doesn't merely take place when we're consciously thinking about it. Worship is intuitive in that it happens all of the time. It happens even when we're not thinking about it. There's never a time when we're not worshiping because to worship simply means to ascribe worth to something or someone, and that's something we do all the time. I like how Ligon Duncan, PCA pastor, puts it. He says that worship is evaluation, and of course there are endless people or things that we value, and rightly so. Hope we all value our families. Hope we value our jobs. I hope we value our hobbies and so forth, and the list goes on and on. But to what person or thing do we ascribe ultimate value? However we honestly answer that question, we've at least identified functionally the true object of our worship. Here's another test for us to take. What is your deepest obsession? What keeps you awake at night? What would you be torn apart if you lost? The answer we provide to those questions is a good barometer of what we ultimately value. Earlier this week, I decided to uh, turn on a movie one night. Because I'm a nerd, I uh, turned on that last Hobbit movie. I think it was called The Battle of the Five Armies. I've admitted this in corporate worship before, but I'll admit it again. I've never read Tolkien. I know that breaks Jeff's heart and somebody, some other people's hearts. I've never read Tolkien. I've only ever seen the movies. Um, and I've heard a Tolkien expert before uh, critique the movie, that it's not good, it's not accurate to Tolkien, but I'm going to swallow my pride and share anyway that I watched the movie, and I saw in the movie a perfect illustration of worship that I just was compelled to share with you. So as I was watching the movie, to spare you all the details, we meet this character, this dwarf king by the name of Thorin. If you've ever seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, just follow along with me. There's this dwarf king named Thorin. And when the movie opens up, this dwarf king Thorin and the rest of the dwarf people are really on top of the world because their mountain abode, their, where they call home, has just been recaptured for the, their people. Uh, it was previously occupied by a dragon uh, inhabitant, but he was defeated. And so the dwarf people who were essentially in exile are now free to return home. And everything's looking up for the dwarf people. But very quickly, King Thorin becomes absolutely lust for power. That, if you've seen the movie before, manifests itself in gold and a desire for gold, and ultimately in lust for a particular stone called the Arkenstone, which apparently is a heirloom of the dwarf people that he must have. He just has to have. And as the storyline moves on and the movie progresses, Thorin is driven absolutely crazy trying to find this thing called the Arkenstone, such, as, such that relationships begin to deteriorate. He becomes absolutely obsessed with it and becomes distrustful of everybody who was in his inner circle, such that when somebody reaches into their pocket, he thinks that they're hiding the Arkenstone from him, and he's even willing to kill anybody that gets in the way of him finding his precious Arkenstone. 
we see that Thorin's valuation of the Arkenstone is abundantly clear. Everything and everyone else is chaff by comparison. And that's what worship is. Worship is an ultimate valuation whereby everything else, regardless of what it might be, gets reprioritized accordingly, such that we'd be willing to lose everything for the sake of that one thing. I think like Thorin, though, we know how to worship. When we read this opening interjection in Psalm 113, hallelujah, and we're subsequently called to praise several times over, that's not something that's foreign to us. Because if we take an honest account of our lives, it wouldn't take very long for us to know that we're worshipers. The problem, though, of course, is that like Thorin, we've appraised other things and other people much too high, and we haven't appraised the God of the universe high enough. And that's why when we read the call to worship, hallelujah, Praise the name of the Lord. It isn't something that's patronizing or inauthentic because we need to be reminded constantly. We need our affections reoriented every waking hour of every day who it is who deserves the ultimate valuation. And that, of course, is the Lord, our God. And the psalmist calls us to praise the name of the Lord. Simply put, to praise the name of the Lord means to praise and to honor and to value everything that God reveals himself to be. And the implications of this are endless because to really take stock of all that God reveals himself to, self, reveals himself to be is a task that we assume our whole lives as we plunge to the depth of the scriptures and the depth of who God reveals himself to be in the scriptures. But just consider from this psalm, who God reveals himself to be in this psalm. The psalmist first sings over God's sovereignty, what we call his transcendence or his otherness. He sings, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? And isn't that the question we ask rhetorically throughout our whole lives? Who is this Lord? Who is the Lord our God? That's the question that's posed before the gospel writers. When we read the gospels, who is this Jesus who we're encountering? Not that the answer isn't known, but that to plunge to the depth and the implications of that answer is something we assume our whole lives. But then the psalmist moves on and he praises God for his imminence. He says that he's the God who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He's the God, as we'll see more vividly in short order, who condescended to you and I and involved himself in our affairs in Christ. And surely we could go on and on. We could invoke the entirety of the scriptures into play to contemplate the character and the person and the works of our God. But the central point here is that when we're called to worship the Lord our God, we get to worship somebody who is known, who isn't far off. We're called to worship someone who at the same time summons us to worship. He reveals himself so that we know who we're worshiping. And in the process, he calls us to reprioritize our affections accordingly. Ligon Duncan again rightly notes that the greatest battle of the Christian life is worship. Worship is the one great battle of the Christian life. And I think Ligon Duncan is spot on with that. But again, to cultivate a life of worship isn't necessarily to cultivate worship in and of itself because we know how to worship. 
Saying, to cult, saying, saying our, the struggle in life is to cultivate worship is like saying the struggle for the human is to learn how to breathe. We know how to breathe. But what Ligon Duncan is getting at here is absolutely right in that what, we, what the fight of the Christian life is is cultivating that right object of worship. And again and again, turning to the scriptures and reprioritizing who it is that we ascribe ultimate value to over and over again. That is the constant battle in our lives, especially when we're confronted with the reality that Calvin says again, that our hearts are idol-making factories. We know how attractive those idols in our lives are. And we know in light of that, that we need to hear this call to praise our Lord over and over and over again. Let's lead to our second point. Second, to cultivate a life of worship involves considering the question, when do we worship? Now, in one sense, we just answered this question because worship is intuitive. It happens all of the time. And the psalmist agrees in this psalm that it should happen all the time. He writes, from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In short, worship should be the bent of every generation. Worship should fill out everything that we do. And Paul even gets at this in First. Corinthians 10 31 where he states in such innocuous terms that so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do even in the mundane do all to the glory of God worship should happen all the time sometimes we make the distinction this is a good grid to see things through we make the distinction between corporate worship and private worship or worship throughout the week corporate worship is of course what we're doing right now when we gather together as a covenant body and we offer praise to the Lord our God, but that doesn't mean that Sundays are the only time when we worship. Worship also, of course, takes place as we go out in our lives and we interact with our families and our coworkers and we read devotionally in the scriptures every day. Worship happens through all of that too. And it's sometimes said that both are mutually reinforcing in that if you haven't been worshiping throughout the week, worshiping properly, I'll say, throughout the week, the Lord our God, we can't come in to corporate worship on Sundays and expect to authentically worship the Lord our God. And if we haven't been worshiping the Lord our God authentically on Sunday mornings, we can't expect to go into worship throughout the week and worship authentically. The two are mutually reinforcing. They need one another because worship needs to happen all the time. But I also think the question of when we worship runs so much deeper than just chronology, in that the call to worship is also a call for every season of life. And now we arrive at the question that was before us in the introduction. What gives us the power and the fuel to worship the Lord our God from the heart, not just token praise, but from the heart, when our hearts are inclined to the exact opposite? What gives us the power or the fuel to worship the Lord our God when we are in incredibly bleak or desperate seasons of life? Well, look with me, if you would, at the second part of Psalm 113, once again, where I believe we find something to cling to for all times in life, but especially when, our bro- when brokenness in our lives is most acute. I'm going to start at uh, verse 5. 
Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is, once again, though, the question for all of life, and that is, who is the Lord? Who is like the Lord our God who is seated in the heavens? And yet, as the psalmist describes to us, even though he's seated in the heavens, he looks down upon the brokenness that you and I experience each and every day. And who is like the Lord our God who not only looked down on our brokenness, but in Christ Jesus did something about it, who came down to us? And who is like the Lord our God who, as Paul tells us in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, The Lord sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, very simply, the backbone to our worship, the source of our worship, even for all times, but especially in the deepest, darkest parts of our lives, is that we've been freed to worship in Christ and we have a reason to worship because of Jesus Christ. Simply put, the cross renews our worship. Now maybe we look still at these last few verses and we ask ourselves in light of whatever we're going through, really? It doesn't seem in my life like the God, like God is the God of renewal. Maybe that's a genuine question on your heart right now. And to be sure, God never promises us in this life a higher socioeconomic plane. He never promises that heartache in this life will evaporate quickly, nor that it'll even evaporate completely. But to use the language from Hebrews 2 that was read for us last week, even though we don't see all things rightly restored in the cosmos, even though pain and suffering categorizes our lives so often, even though all of that is true, and even though we look forward to the consummation of all things, even though we go through seasons of life that typify heartache and brokenness, what the psalmist says we do see is we see Jesus Christ. And that, friends, is the only hope that we can cling to for worship. I noted just before the scripture reading at the very beginning of the sermon that Psalm 113 was one of the chief psalms sung during the Passover meal as part of the Hillel Psalms. Uh, And as commentators point out in light of this, Psalm 113 through 118 were also probably the psalms that Jesus and his disciples sung right before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. Matthew, I'm sure it occurs in more Gospels than just Matthew, but in Matthew 26:30, for instance, right before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a, Matthew tells us that, um, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out. And commentators note that, uh, that that hymn that was probably sung, or those hymns that were probably sung, were very likely Psalm 113 to 118. Would have made sense because they were crucial to the Passover meal. And so think about it in light of this. As Jesus when he's going to the garden, knowing full well what's about to come, where he's about to be, he's prepared to be handed over and crucified and bear the full weight of the sins of his people, he's still able to sing about how God raises the poor from the dust and how God gives the barren woman a home because he knows that through death and judgment, he will be raised from the ash heap for our sake and be crowned Lord of all. 
And it's only because Jesus went through the judgment waters that we have resurrection hope. Hope that recognizes that God in Christ ultimately raises us from the ash heap of sin and death. And it's only because Jesus was lifted up from the ash heap that we have the power to worship even in our darkest days. To cultivate a life of worship then involves clinging to and resting all that we are for all times, not just in our bleakest days, upon the name of the Lord, because he is the reason we can worship, even as the psalmist puts it, when our closest companions have become darkness. He's the reason we can worship when we're seemingly in the middle of the ash heap, because we know that through Jesus Christ, the ash heap has been conquered, and we have resurrection hope in light of that. And this leads to our third point. Third, to cultivate a life of worship involves considering the people of worship. It's important to note that this psalm is addressed to a specific group of people. We read in verse 1, O servants of the Lord. That's who we are in Christ. We are servants of the Lord. Now, that might not sound like an endearing term. I don't know if any of us really like to be called servants. That has much more of a uh, demeaning connotation, maybe, in, uh, for our ears. But it's actually a title of honor, as commentators note, because it reminds us, among other things, of our privilege as the people of God. It reminds us that as the people of God, we're in the unique position to be able to meet with our God, commune with him, and fellowship with him. It reminds us that we get to enjoy our God as we meet with him. But just who do these servants include then? Well, the covenant body, absolutely. But the covenant body, more precisely, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. When the psalmist tells us that the name of the Lord is to be praised from the rising of the sun to its setting, he's actually invoking there a geographic image. It's from, we could translate it in another way, The the name of the Lord is to be praised from the place where the sun rises, from the furthest east you can imagine, to the place where the sun sets, to the furthest west that you can imagine. It's a device known as a mirrorism, where two opposites are used to invoke the whole. And the totality in view is the covenant people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing together and worshiping the Lord our God. I love what Augustine writes on this, and I've included this if you looked in your reflection in the bulletin this morning. I included this in the reflection in the bulletin. Let me just read you what Augustine writes, and you can follow along with me if you have your bulletin. He writes, the holy church is what we are, but I do not mean we in the sense of just those who are here, you who are listening to me now, as many of us are by the grace of God, Christian believers in this church, that is, in this city, as many as there are in this region, as many as there are in this province, as many as there are also across the sea, as many as there are in the whole wide world, since from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In other words, a life of worship understands that at the same time we have our local expression of the church here at Spruce Creek Presbyterian Church. When we gather to worship, we're actually gathering with the saints who are worshiping all around the globe from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The implications of that, of course, are the church of Jesus Christ knows no cultural, it knows no ethnic, it knows no racial, it knows no geopolitical boundaries. 
And thus, it's incumbent upon you and I that when we gather for worship each and every Sunday, that we not set up any barriers that would prevent the nations from coming and worshiping with us, even in our own community in Port Orange. This is one of the reasons, for instance, that we pray, or we try to pray at least every week during the pastoral prayer for the nations, for the church around the globe, because it reminds us of the vastness of the church. It reminds us of who, just who those servants from every tribe, tongue, and nation truly are. And at the same time, it encourages us that we're not alone on an island, that we worship with saints all around the globe who are giving praise to the name of the Lord. And in this sense, Psalm 113, and surely we could look at a whole host of other psalms too, they foreshadow the heavenly eschatological worship that Revelation 7 talks about, where all the saints are gathered around the throne of God, giving praise night and day to the Lord for who he is, for being Savior and for being King. And that's the testimony when we gather as a church together, as a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as a remnant from various ethnicities and various backgrounds and various circumstances, when we meet together as the covenant community and as the covenant body, we're, we're a testimony to the world of who the church is and ultimately who our God is. As our God is the God who is Savior, who is Lord, who is King, and it reminds us that we as an unholy people can find grace, mercy, and peace before a holy God. That's what we proclaim when we worship, that God would meet with us, come down to us. And that's even what we declare and show forth in the Lord's Supper that we're going to partake in in just a moment. We show forth that we are the body of Christ, a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation, whom God in Christ has gathered together to commune with him to feast with him, to participate in worshiping our God. We are his people who have been bought with a price and have the privilege of giving praise, of singing hallelujah to our Lord and our God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we have heard your voice in the word this morning, that we have heard the gospel We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we pray that as we approach the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that we would see similarly, that the Lord is God, that the Lord is good, and that the Lord would meet with us, and that we have the privilege of communing with you. Lord, we pray that we would see, just as we heard the gospel, that we would now see the gospel in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.